It's always a sincere honor to be put on the short list for an important job, isn't it? Stay tuned. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Democracy is just so cumbersome. The religious nationalists figured out they could circumvent such inconvenience by packing courts throughout America with right-wing zealots. And indeed, it's worked stunningly well. But right now, with the retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer, President Biden has a chance to protect at least the Supreme Court from more right-wing radicals like the three Trump jammed in there. And by now, everyone knows the president plans to keep his pledge to put forth a black woman. And of course, when it comes to politics, race and power, nothing is easy. How novel is Biden's pledge, which narrows the scope away from the traditional white male domain? Can he get it done without the rather astounding shenanigans of Mitch McConnell, who put a padlock on the normal process when Obama nominated Merrick Garland? Is justice undermined by this prioritization of filling the seat with a black woman? And what can we learn about the future of the Supreme Court and whether the power and intent of the Constitution will survive? With us today is Hannah Brenner Johnson to talk about her new book, Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court, which she, she co-authored with Renee Nake uh, Jefferson. Hannah Brenner Johnson is Vice Dean for Academic and Student Affairs and an Associate Professor of Law at California Western School of Law in San Diego. Of course, women considered for the court have had to battle tokenism, stereotypes about motherhood or childlessness, being subjected to examinations of sexuality and discrimination regarding older women. Well, thanks for being with us, Hannah Johnson. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. It seems Biden is kind of like a pincushion these days, just getting jabbed all over the place. But the fact is that the patron saint of Republicans, Ronald Reagan, made his own promise, which at the time was controversial. Tell us about that, please. Absolutely. And I think for some people, they think that Biden's promise to put a black woman on the Supreme Court is this anomalous thing that has never, in fact, happened before. But uh, in fact, as you uh, allude to, President Reagan, uh, during his presidential campaign, uh, campaigned on the promise to put a woman on the Supreme Court, which at that time was this incredibly novel thing, because um, before Sandra Day O'Connor became the first, um, the woman he, he ultimately nominated and was confirmed, there had never been a woman on the Supreme Court. And so President Reagan campaigned on that promise, and then he made good on it when, once he was in office, when he was faced with a vacancy. Um, of course, President Reagan's record of diversity among judicial appointments generally mm. was not something that one would refer to as stellar. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, um, he did deliver uh, the first woman, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, to serve on the court. And so in, in many respects, what President Biden um, uh, is doing is, is you know, not at all different than the Republican president um, who came before him a number of decades ago. 
I think it is worth noting, though, that President Reagan's promise to put a woman on the court um, undoubtedly meant uh, that he would deliver a, a white woman nominee. <laughs> Um, because, <laughs> um, because woman and white were synonymous. Oh, gosh. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you can only expect uh, so much from those guys. Well, affirmative action has been criticized forever as giving people, sure. people of color an unfair advantage over equally qualified students. Not surprisingly, some of the flack about Biden's prioritizing a black woman and shutting out consideration of all others uh, has troubled some people. Is this a version of affirmative action? Is the president putting race above mere qualifications? I'm sure you expected that question. <laughs> I did. Um, and it is a question and an issue that, um, you know, at this point it just makes my blood boil, but I'm happy um, I'm happy to to discuss it with you. You know, if you take a look at the 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 black women who are on Biden's shortlist who are being considered, um, I mean, there is there is no way to look at them, at their qualifications, at their backgrounds, at their experience, um, and come to a logical conclusion that this is merely, you know, an, a move of of promoting somebody, um, you know, based on a particular identity factor over their qualifications. You know, we have long since had. Um, you know, binders um, full of qualified women yes. um, and women of color uh, who could have sat uh, on the Supreme Court. And in fact, you know, it is not um, this is not the first time um, that presidents have considered black women. But but racism and sexism and other forms of discrimination have impeded former presidents um, from from elevating somebody, uh, a woman of color who is qualified um, from the shortlist to selected. That's true. And the title of the book is, of course, shortlisted. And African-American women have, as I understand it, previously been considered, but ultimately shortlisted for appointments to the Supreme Court. Tell us, please, about the title of your book, Shortlisted Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court. Being on the shortlist sounds like a good thing. I mean, it's quite impressive. It, it, it is always a good thing, isn't it? What does it mean, really, to be shortlisted? And how many women were shortlisted before Sandra Day O'Connor? So what is, what's shortlist? How'd you get that title? Sure. So, you know, when you think about women in the Supreme Court, of course, Sandra Day O'Connor comes to mind because she was the first, as we talked about, President Reagan got her on the on the court. But our book uh, unpacks and reveals um, another storyline that often has gone untold and unnoticed um, about the women who, in fact, were shortlisted by presidents dating back to the 1930s. And that may come as a surprise um, to some of your listeners that, in fact, President Hoover, of all people, um, actually considered a woman for the Supreme Court. But to talk about um, the title and the book um, requires a little bit um, of a story. So I hope that you will indulge me for just a moment um, to kind of give you that backstory uh, and how we how we um, how we got to the title and ultimately the research that um, informed the book. Yeah. So my colleague, um, uh, uh, Professor Jefferson uh, and I were engaged in a different project. We were doing a media study of the way that um, mainstream media portrayed nominees to the Supreme Court through a gendered lens. This was back in the over a decade ago when um, President Obama uh, had nominated uh, now Justice Sotomayor and Kagan. And we were 
my colleague and I were very um, offended by the way that they were being scrutinized um, on the pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, based on things that were unrelated to their qualifications. So they were being critiqued by what they were wearing, um, whether they had children, the fact that they were single, um, their mm. sexuality was 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 questioned. Um, and, you know, they were they were scrutinized on all of these measures that women know well. Um, uh, you know, we we are we are judged based on these things, um, you know, above and beyond the qualifications that we, we may bring for a particular job. And so my colleague and I engaged in this extensive, comprehensive media study to not just complain about, but actually study and understand the way that these other factors were being considered. And perhaps not surprisingly, um, we concluded that, in fact, um, the female nominees to the court um, were subject to additional scrutiny on a lot of different measures. Mm -hmm. But embedded embedded in that project was an article that we stumbled upon that really formed the basis for this particular study that, that resulted in the book. We read an article that was published in the 1970s. Um, it was published by the New York Times, and it was about a judge from California, a woman named Mildred Lilly. Um, Mildred Lilly was, in fact, being considered for the Supreme Court by President Nixon. And the article was notable for several reasons. Um, one, it critiqued the way that she looked in a bathing suit. No. Um, she was maintained her bathing beauty figure, the reporter wrote. Um, and it was fortunate, the reporter went on to say, that she had no children. Because, of course, how could a woman be seriously considered for the court um, if she had children um, uh in any event, we were stunned, of course, by the sexism that was so evident in this piece. We chalked it up, perhaps, to the, the time. It was in the 1970s, after all. But at the same time, we were shocked that we had never heard of Judge Lilly. Uh -huh. And we did not know that before Sandra Day O'Connor, there, in fact, were women who were considered for the Supreme Court. And so that article really began this study. We wondered and asked each other the question, well, if we hadn't heard of Lily and she was shortlisted and, and Nixon actually considered another woman, Sylvia Bacon, we wondered who else may have been shortlisted over time. And so we sat about um, the business of uncovering mm -hmm. uh, this list of what turned out to be nine women um, who dating back to the early 30s were shortlisted up until Sandra Day O'Connor um, ultimately was appointed to the court. You know, as as you described, shortlisted, you know, at first I thought, well, it's quite an honor to be on the shortlist. But then again, as you described it, it's, it reminded me like of a, of a police interrogation under the hot lights. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it's true. I mean, you can't get onto the court or to, into any position of, of leadership or power without be first being placed on the list. So right. it is, in fact, um, it is, in fact, necessary. And it is, of course, an honor yeah. um, to be shortlisted. But presidents over time have used the shortlist in a very as, as a very political vehicle uh -huh. um, to appease certain cohorts of voters, um, you know, to sort of, uh, I guess, put forth the perception right. that they care about diversity, um, you know, of, of the race and gender and political sort. But then ultimately, you know, put the person on the court that or nominate the person who, who they they feel will probably benefit them on um, the most. It is a highly political process. And as you, as you say, it does result in incredible scrutiny of these individuals' lives. <laughs> oh, I can't imagine. And of course, this, you know, the political uh, theater of throwing people a crumb, you know, certain demographics. Oh, we got to look like we're doing something here, but we're not really doing <laughs> 
anything. Absolutely. I think Nixon was probably the most guilty of doing that. Um, He, you know, of course, put uh, uh, Mildred Lilly, Penelope Bacon on the shortlist. But in private, um, and we've listened to the White House tapes, Ooh. you know, he confided uh, in his with his advisors that he didn't even think women should have the right to vote, much less serve on the court. <laughs> and so he literally was throwing that crumb to, um, <laughs> you know, female voters. <laughs> oh, my God, those tapes. Well, yes. <laughs> maybe maybe we'll hear some tapes of this uh, recent uh, recently departed orange thing. That would be uh, interesting. He seems so <laughs> clearly guilty. Ah, that's another story. For you just, if for those people who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive and we're looking at uh, the judicial aspect of it. It's not as much you know, generally in the news is the uh, standard political fair. But our guest today is Hannah Brenner Johnson, who is co-author of a new book, Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court. And while we're talking about that uh, unique character, Nixon, uh, his standing in history is not on the upswing. Uh, You know, he famously (laughs) nominated Robert Bork to the court. That was rejected. Now, speculating... Do you think Bork would be rejected by today's Senate? And what does that say about impartial justice and the the basic uh, overriding character of impartial justice? Oh, I mean, that's a really, really good question. And I, I, you know... I know, it's speculating. (laughs) And, you know, obviously this idea of impartiality and impartial justice is, I mean, that's sort of the cornerstone of our democracy and yet the way that it plays out in practice is often anything but that. Um, and so it can be very discouraging, I think, to watch this process. I mean, the judiciary is, by design, um, is, you know, in contrast to the mm-hmm. other um, branches of government, supposed to be um, you know, free from all of this, this politicking. And yet um, the Supreme Court appointment process has um, fallen in line with, uh, with other we you know with with the other the other branches and their you know very um, hardcore um, hardcore politics. So um, it's it it can be you know for those of us who study the court and study the appointment process and are very tuned in, um, it can be it can be very discouraging um, uh, to be sure. Yeah, and it's supposed to be a, the third you know leg of the stool. There's the executive, the legislative, and to balance it out the courts, and there's that symbol of justice, Lady Justice uh, blindfolded holding a, uh, a balance, uh, and uh, it rarely works like that. Now, you know, ideally the court is above partisan politics. It was created yes. to safeguard safeguard the laws enshrined in our Constitution. We've had some seriously impressive Supreme Court justices in our history, some very beneficial. Others did real harm. Has it ever been nonpartisan, free of politics, and has it become more partisan in recent decades? Your thoughts? So I think there has, I mean, uh, certainly my research has revealed that there has always been um, uh, you know, a it, it, it's been political, um, and the and the partisan, you know, nature of it cannot be cannot be overlooked. But my perception is that over time it has in fact changed. Um, you know, we we look at some of the individuals who have been shortlisted in the past, and they've been shortlisted by presidents um, who cross partisan lines. Um, so so one of the women who was shortlisted. 
um, uh, the, the only woman of color, um, the only black woman in our study, was, is a woman named Amalia Kearse. Mm. She currently sits on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals um, in senior status. But she was considered by... Um, by presidents across the um, across the you know the divide. So um, George H. W. Bush and Bill Clinton um, both um, shortlisted and considered her for the court. Um, and I think that over you know over time you may have seen um, you know a little bit less of the strong partisan lines that were being drawn. Um, look at the confirmation records of justices um, who came before the Senate. Um, you know the votes um, would not necessarily have been. Um, sliced very, very cleanly down um, the partisan lines, which is what we certainly see and, and expect, I think, for this newest justice, um, whoever uh, she may be. Um, I think Amelia Kearse is really interesting um, to talk about because, again, this this notion that Biden is considering a black woman um, to some seems anomalous, but in fact, not the first time it's happened. Um, and, uh, you know, the fact that Kearse never made it off of the shortlist, despite her impeccable qualifications, um, I think makes it just even more evident that uh, it's time for um, for this, you know, for, for Biden's promise to be to be delivered. And there's a, there's been a lot of recognizing the reality that public opinion does <laughs> count. You know, maybe technically it's not supposed to when it comes uh, to the Supreme Court. They're supposed to be free from that. But there's no lack of evidence that they do care about how the public perceives the Supreme Court. And my understanding is lately, it ain't good. The, the people have, have a lot of uh, concern about the course. So uh, does the addition of an African-American woman <clears throat> to the Supreme Court, does it add institutional legitimacy, uh, which is uh, sorely needed right now? Well, I would um, argue absolutely um, that it does. Um, it allows the court to more accurately and appropriately reflect the public that it ultimately ultimately serves. You know, I've I've had some discussions with folks who have said, well, you know, if you look at the composition of the legal profession, you know, black women make up just a tiny percentage of the overall profession, and yeah. therefore, you know, arguing for representation on the court doesn't make sense. Um, but I think that is simply a flawed argument. Um, you know, for one, there have been significant barriers to the entrance and advancement of of women and color women of color and other minorities into the profession and so to the extent that the profession's you know demographics are um, are skewed in the way that they are uh -huh. um, i think there's not does not does not lead then one to conclude that well there shouldn't be any women of color on the supreme court i think it's better to look at the public and to look at um, you know the people ultimately um, who who live and 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 work and and are a part of this country, um, and having um, a black woman on the court, um, I, I do agree, um, adds that that legitimacy, um, and and adds important um, an important part of important piece of diversity um, to the Supreme Court. How how do you think uh, nominating you know and and sticking with his promise to nominate a black woman in in general? How does it reflect? the additional challenges and burdens faced by all women of color in professional life. You touched on that on that a bit. And it's like, you know, I, I often think that the real important history is that which we don't see, that which is eh, semi-intentionally erased. But, but how, does, how does what's going on re reflect uh, additional challenges and burdens faced by all women of color in professional life? 
Well, I think that this decision to very intentionally um, elevate a, a black woman to the court um, is really putting into the public eye, uh, you know, it, it, it's taking, it's truly taking this process out of the shadows and putting it into the, the public space for us all to view. Um, you know, I think in, in many respects, we have transcended the time of explicit discrimination. So, you know, back in the day, law firms literally would say to women, African-American women, you know, other minorities, you know, our doors are closed. Like, you know, oh, yeah. you look qualified, you appear qualified, but we're not going to hire you. Um, you know, many of the women in our study um, experienced the, literally the door being slammed in their face mm. simply because they were women. Um, in fact, Amalia Pierce, um, during one of her initial um, interviews on Wall Street out of law school, was told by the partner of a law firm, I would hire you in a minute if only you were a man. Um, and so, you know, the, those kinds of burdens, those kinds of challenges, you know, perhaps of the explicit nature um, are, are fewer and far between. But the implicit bias that women and particularly women of color face are still ever present. Um, and the, you know, persistent sexism, um, the perception, the um, persistent, you know, perception that we still can't do things like juggle motherhood um, and uh, professional life. Um, you know, if we look back just um, a few months ago at the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, um, she was asked during her confirmation hearings, you know, who does the laundry in your house? Oh um, these are, <laughs> these are, um, you know, questions that, that 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 should not be uttered and should not come into to play. Um, she was criticized for being kind of a super mother because she has so many children, um, whereas uh, Kagan and Sotomayor were, you know, thought to be very strange because they didn't have children at all. I think that this particular example highlights how, um, you, you know, there is a double bind um, that women uh, in professional life face. And so, you know, making the um, the commitment um, to transcend those challenges um, and, you know, put a, a, a black woman on the court um, potentially, you know, helps us get around some of that. It's not, of course, going to stop the scrutiny, the discrimination, the criticism, um, the judgment, but it at least helps um, just a little bit. Yeah, I, I would sure hope so. That, uh, you know, I, I've often found it interesting when, you know, men are applying for jobs, are they asked who's going to take care of the kids, who does the laundry, who does the cooking? Of course not. It's, you know, <laughs> men are fathers too. And it's just, right. it's amazing to me. So maybe, I mean, this may be entirely unrealistic and naive to think that this particular move uh, could start to uh, whittle away at, at such, you know, perhaps unintentional unconscious anyway, roadblocks that there are to, to women in general and women of color in particular. Whoa, we have a lot, you know, people, I've heard people say, oh, we don't have institutional racism in America. Look, we had a black president. <laughs> you know, people have, it, it amazes me. People don't want to see the important stuff. You were about to say something, I can tell. Well, they, they, I think that's exactly true. And I think part of it, though, is, is something that you um, that you touched upon. You know, I, I think that for most people, it's not intentional, right? It's right, not right. conscious, um, but it, it it's so ingrained. It is so institutionalized. It is so a part of our culture that unless we are 
acutely aware of it and we constantly, yeah. you know, check ourselves, um, it can be very, um, it can be very difficult to, to name um, and to address. And so in some respects, you know, when law firms and law schools used to say, you know, you can't, <laughs> we're not going to admit you based on your race or your gender. In some ways that was, it was a very challenging form of discrimination, of course, but it was easy in the respect that we could identify it. Whereas, you know, now it just comes across in much more subtle, much more um, unintentional ways. And I think there's also a a cultural defensiveness that many of us, and I I include myself in that as well, um, certainly not above the, you know, the unconscious bias, um, you know, despite the fact that I, that I study and teach um, and work on these issues every day. Um, But it can be really challenging to be called out on that bias and to be called out on that implicit discrimination. Um, And so it, to me, it makes it a problem that is even more challenging to solve. Yeah. And, you know, there's being a woman, there's being a black woman. Those are two uh, difficult hits. And, you know, I think about, uh, uh, you know, overt versus covert uh, action. You know, back, oh, 100 years ago, uh, the way to keep black people from voting was, uh, you know, night riders, uh, burning crosses, things like that. Now in the 21st century, it's much more subtle, but it's voter suppression nonetheless. It's just more yes. 21st century stuff. Oh, my. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Hannah Brenner Johnson, who is co-author of the new book, Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court. Well, it sounds like it was an interesting research process. Tell us about that and, uh, you know, the, the ways, uh, what, what you had to do, how long it took, and uh, what the sources were. Well, um, you know, as I mentioned, um, the project started, it was birthed from another project, um, and it it began really as this research question, you know, who who were there any women um, who had been shortlisted? Um, You know, we knew about Nixon's, the two on Nixon's list, um, uh, Sylvia Bacon and uh, Mildred Lilly, Um, but we didn't know, you know, who else may have appeared on shortlist. And unlike other parts of the political process, it's not a real easy question to answer. Um, you know, when somebody runs for president, there's so much documentation. Um, you know, we know who the two candidates, the three candidates um, are. But when it comes to Supreme Court shortlist, presidents don't have like a Google form that they fill out, you know, and indicate, you know, who's on the list. Um, president Trump was actually the first president to make explicitly public on the White House website who was on his, it was actually quite a long list, but you know, who appeared on his shortlist. And so our research, the research to just determine what women, if any, um, were on the list was very, very challenging. Um, In fact, political political scientists talk about the Supreme Court appointment process and the shortlist in particular as one of the most challenging areas of research um, to engage in. And so it literally required my co-author and I um, to dig through presidential archives and um, different collections of papers um, to piece together, uh, you know, what we, what ultimately became our list of nine. Um, we didn't set out to find nine shortlisted women before O'Connor became the first, but we kind of like that sort of poetic um, yeah. you know, piece that um, <laughs> um, that came from from the research. And you know, there are some scholars who compiled lists of of who the shortlisted. Um, 
who shortlisted you know people were over time. Um, our research departed from some of those those experts. Um, you know, we identify Florence Allen, for example, as um, uh, the very first woman who was considered um, most notably by FDR. Um, but our research in the archives found that President Hoover um, uh, considered her as well. She was a judge from the state of Ohio uh, in the 1930s, um, who was this incredible um, trailblazer. You know, if you think about the the sexism today and what it must have been like, um, you know, back almost 100 years ago, it's, it's hard to imagine um, that she, you know, could command the kind of respect that would, um, you know, give a, a president, uh, you know, the um, a reason to to consider her for the court. Of course, probably again a largely political move without much of a chance of it actually coming to fruition. Uh-huh. Um, but interesting, interesting nonetheless. So the project took a decade, um, really, from the time that uh, that Renee and I started. Um, you know, working on our initial media study, um, the book was actually called Not Nominated um, in its early incarnation huh. um, and then evolved uh, into what I think is a, a far better title, um, Shortlisted, well, uh, which I think better captures the story. Well, as as we know, there are a few women who are shortlisted now, and we will get to that before the end of the show. But I, who was the first officially listed woman as a contender for a seat on the Supreme Court? So that would have been Florence Allen, this judge from uh-huh, Ohio. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, Whom I never you know, heard she, of. Right. <laughs> right. Of course. Um, and, you know, and neither, neither had we. I think um, she definitely uh, enjoys a bit of um, star status, I think, among lawyers and judges in the state of Ohio. Huh. Um, but for the rest of us, um, not so much. There's actually um, a wonderful archive um, devoted to her, to her life and her papers um, uh, at Case Western Reserve um, uh, Historical Library that we had the pleasure of digging through. Alan was very, very. It was an interesting um, uh, woman. She was uh, not married. Uh, she was rumored to be in serious relationships with two women um, over the course of of her career. You know, so not only. Um, was she, you know, an outlier in terms of being a trailblazer um, uh, in the legal profession, but also was, you know, pushing back against, you know, heterosexual um, mm-hmm. norm might not be, might not even be a strong enough word. Um, I mean, that was, you know, there was really no framework um, for same-sex relationships um, at that time, and so in some ways that mm. that fact may not have have hurt her um, because her life was was lived largely um, in secret. Um, of course, she did not make it onto the court, but we do wonder, and it's an interesting thought question, about what might have happened if she had actually been appointed in the 1930s. Right. What 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 would you know? What would Supreme Court opinions have looked like? How would they have been different? And perhaps how many other women would have made it onto the court in those intervening 50 years before um, O'Connor did, in fact, become the first woman? So, like thinking about. Uh, so-called women's issues like reproductive rights, which affect men too, you know, but it affects women's bodies rather more directly. But how, how can you, if she had been on the court and she was nominated when and, and what, how, how might she perhaps, perhaps have expedited America's progress toward gender equality? I mean, I think that, that it, it, it undoubtedly would have done that um, probably in a couple of ways. 
you know, we talk a lot about the importance of representation and even symbolic, um, you know, the symbolism um, of having um, women in positions of power. Um, you know, Madeleine Albright is sort of famously known for when being asked about whether she thought about being Secretary of State when she was, you know, earlier in her career or a young woman. Um, and her response was, well, I didn't think that was a job that was open to me because I never saw a Secretary of State wearing a skirt. And I think that that sentiment is an important one. Um, you know, certainly, you know, as a young woman myself coming of age, you know, I never saw a, a, a woman, um, you know, a president. I didn't see very many women role models in these top leadership positions. Even when I, when I got to law school, the portraits that adorned the halls of my law school were of, you know, very accomplished, but all white men. And so the... You know the the symbolism and just the the representation of having a woman or a woman of color on the court, the, the nation's highest court. I have to think would have opened doors um, and opened up that possibility for other girls um, and women to consider that perhaps they could also transcend some of the barriers that that existed. So that's a piece of what I think would have happened. Um, you know, it's hard to say whether other presidents would have immediately followed suit. Um, even after O'Connor made it onto the court, we didn't see, you know, a flood of women. In fact, <laughs> we haven't had that many. If, um, even when Biden's, um, nom- you know, nominee ultimately is confirmed, it'll be the first time that we will have four women sitting on the court. So um, I don't think that the floodgates would have opened at that time. But I do think that having Allen um, or another early woman on the court would have also impacted the decision making. Um, it simply could not have, you know, certainly once O'Connor um, became uh, a justice, you know, the conversations that the that she would have with her male colleagues, um, you know, opened their eyes to issues that perhaps they had never thought about. Uh, I listened to Justice Ginsburg speak um, mm-hmm. not that long before her death, um, and mm-hmm. she talked about how her presence on the court um, softened, if you will, or educated or illuminated um, the views of her male colleagues about issues that that perhaps they simply never would have had to think about um, before. And so um, I think that we probably would have made some more significant progress had a woman made it onto the court earlier than the early 80s. Um, and, so, and, and I think the same could be said about women in um, in in you know, other positions of, of political leadership as well. Um, I date myself a little bit by, by sharing this particular detail, but when I was in the seventh grade, um, uh, it was the Mondel Ferraro ticket. And, you know, for me as a, you know, 12 year old girl seeing Geraldine Ferraro running for vice president, um, that was a really big deal. Um, and I can't help but think influential in, in my own career. Yeah, it's important to to put. I mean, symbolism. Lord knows, is is very important. She, I, I, I think there was a, a sincere move by Mondale at the time. I've, I voted for him and her, <laughs> um, but uh, and and you know, step by step, little by little, it's it's hard. I mean, especially in this country. And I wanted to ask about. Uh, a few other items in history, uh, like, for, for example, how the media treated President Obama's nominations of Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan, and Bush's nomination of Harriet Mears. Was it Mears or Myers? I don't know. My, Harriet Myers. <clears throat> yep. Harriet Myers. I vaguely recall some controversy about Harriet Myers. Pl- please refresh my memory on, on Myers and how the mainstream media handled Sotomayor and Kagan. 
Absolutely. Well, I'll start with Myers um, because she's the only woman who was nominated to the court, but then withdrew herself from the nomination. So um, we write about her um, in the book. Her her ascendance onto the court was stymied um, for a lot of reasons. She was, from our perspective, as qualified as other justices um, who had been on the court. Um, she went to a top law school. She was a leader in the community. She was president of the Texas State Bar. But she had been um, President Bush's counsel um, when he was governor and then also when he was president. And, you know, in a lot of respects, um, she that, you know, as a result of that role, I think, was heavily scrutinized for a, perhaps a much longer period of time um, than other potential nominees may have been. Um, I think a lot of people just dismiss her and the whole debacle surrounding her nomination um, as one reflective of her lack of qualification. Um, but we push back against that and would argue that she um, you know, encountered the problems that she did because of gender bias. Um, so it's sort of interesting to, to note that some of her qualifications, for example, you know, being president of the state bar, um, well, that worked in the favor of Justice Powell. He had been president of the um, American Bar Association, and, and that that fact was celebrated um, when President Nixon um, announced his nomination. Um, but it worked against Harriet Myers um, as something that detracted from her qualification. In fact, um, we talked about Bork um, a little while ago, um, who was not successful um, in his, uh, you know, with that nomination. Um, but he criticized uh, Myers uh, and the fact that she had been the state bar president. Um, in Texas um, is something that was no more than just, you know, a trivial fact um, and meant nothing. And so I think that that sort of just describes this double bind um, that women um, awful often face. Um, it's also worth noting that um, that Myers didn't have a connection to the Federalist Society, which, you know, it, if you follow um, Supreme Court politics today, you know that at least insofar as the conservative nominees are concerned, um, that interest group plays a pretty pivotal role um, and at the time was becoming more and more important as a part of the Supreme Court process. Um, and they really weren't um, all that interested in her. And so there were a lot of things at play, um, but probably, you know, more than anything, it was just a case of good old fashioned um, gender bias. So fast forward um, to, um, uh, you know, a little over a decade ago when President Obama was faced with um, two vacancies on the court separated by about a year. Um, he, of course, nominated and then the Senate eventually confirmed um, Justices Kagan and Sotomayor. Um, both women were, as I mentioned, um, heavily scrutinized um, by the media. Um, you know, headlines ranged from um, things like who wore it better um, above the law did a poll um, because both women actually showed up to their Supreme Court confirmation hearings wearing a blue blazer that looked similar. Um, and so above the law couldn't resist, you know, asking which woman looked better um, in that blazer as if somehow that had something to do with, you know, how they may ultimately um, be as Supreme Court justices. And that um, was, excuse me was, for interrupting, that was in the 1990s? <laughs> No, this was in this was in the um, the early part of two thousand. Oh my goodness! Um, oh. Yes, this was in two thousand nine and two thousand ten, um, not that long ago. So you know we can we can perhaps dismiss the criticism of um, of Judge Lilly in the seventies and chalk that up to you know sexism of that time. But fast forward, you know, forty fifty years, and we're still being evaluated um, on those same sorts of measures. 
um, both women were also um, scrutinized because they weren't married. Um, they didn't have children. Um, there were headlines that were written in mainstream newspapers like the Supreme Court needs more mothers. Um, again, as if, <laughs> as if, right? Um, and then they get one uh, in the form of Amy, Amy Coney Barrett, who has seven children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the question becomes, well, how could she possibly be a Supreme Court justice and a mother? So it's like the, it's the double bind. It's the no win situation. Unbelievable. You know, and, and I'm I'm guessing that there was a man involved in those seven children. You know? <laughs> well, I mean, yes, I think that's a fair <laughs> fair assumption. <laughs> oh my goodness. It, it's it's appalling. And and it goes on and on and on. And you know, here here we are now. President Biden's pledge, this is just from the New York Times, pledge to name a black woman to fill the Supreme Court vacancy has thrust Republicans into a tricky political calculation, forcing them to confront how aggressive to be in opposing the nominee, as of course they will, and how to do so without appearing to be racist and sexist. Now, in in ver- not very long ago, appearing to be racist and sexist, pff, no big deal. But I, I do think that that says something that they have to uh, at least they have to uh, uh, you know appear to not be racist or sexist. Your comments on on the position that that puts them in the tricky political calculation. Right. I mean, I you know I I think that um, <laughs> they inevitably will have those those views and those perspectives, but the fact that it is something that they have to actually right. be aware of um, and consider. Uh, you know, I mean, causing harm to you know their own um, their own elected positions um, is it's it, it is different. Um, Thank goodness. <laughs> oh, Absolutely, yes. Um, it's hard to it's hard. I mean, I of course I'm revealing perhaps um, a bit of my um, partisan um, perspective here, but it's hard to feel sorry for them um, <laughs> in this regard. <laughs> yeah, I'd say my goodness. Really, somebody, you know, who's... Uh, anyway, we're in agreement on that. Now, then there's the mainstream media and and calling attention to the color of their jackets and who look better. My goodness, do you expect the media to be more fair relative to Biden's eventual appointee? You know, I wish that I <laughs> felt an optimistic um, about that. But given just, you know, what we have continued to witness, even as recent as the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, um, you know, who was, again, was was evaluated and scrutinized based on things unrelated to her qualifications. Um, I don't know that we've come um, that far. And I, you know, again, it's, it, it's almost as if people don't recognize um, the, just the implicit nature of the comments um, and the critique. I mean, some of it is very blatantly um, obvious, um, but other, but other, I think, forms of this sort of scrutiny, um, it's just, it's just kind of the way that things are. And, you know, I think it's worth noting that this media study that, that Renee and I did, we looked at the Supreme Court nominees, right? And uh, that is a, probably one of the most um, highly visible forms of um, of highly visible ways that the legal profession is represented in the media, because uh-huh. you know there's not we're, we're not um, it's not like sort of presidential politics right. or um, you know senatorial elections um, where you know like once you you become a judge the judiciary is sort of kind of a quiet um, part of our 
of our political context. But to the extent that the way that these nominees to the court are are treated um, and the bias and the discrimination that they face is a reflection of what women everyday women, normal, everyday lawyers who, you know, get up and go to work at their law firm or teach at their law school, the kind of um, bias and discrimination that they face, I think that's really what we were trying to get across. So we had a, we have an opportunity to study the very public nomination process of Supreme Court um, justices, but we make the argument that the way that they're treated is just a reflection of, you know, what everyday regular women are facing um, in their lives as professionals. And so in that way, um, it really sheds light on this ongoing, um, these ongoing challenges. Um, you know, we, yeah. I think people are, people are very fast to say, well, you know, there is no more bias. There isn't no more sure. discrimination, you know, it's illegal. Like, but, right. but I think we know, um, through certainly through our study and through our research that that is, um, <laughs> unfortunately, um, not true. You make me think of, uh, there's a book uh, which you've probably read called uh, Slavery by Another Name. The legally ended slavery uh, back in 1865 or whatever, but then it actually de facto continued for a very long time. Yes. And you talk about the, you know, the, the very public elections. I mean, there are people, as I'm sure you know some, who say, well, I only vote in presidential times. I don't vote otherwise. It's so... <laughs> practically invisible and i think that was one of the brilliant things the far right did uh and there's a there's a wonderful book about this called uh, the power worshippers by Catherine stewart about how the far right has looked at the invisibility of the courts because people don't look at that stuff but they've slowly but surely taken over the courts across this country and it really makes a difference in people's lives and people's rights, you know, pulling it to the to the far right, uh, replacing a republic with religious nationalism. And right. I, I, I did want to mention and and, and we uh, brag a little bit about my, my hometown in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. We mentioned Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Of course, how could you talk about the Supreme Court and not mention <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Right. There's actually a new business development downtown Portsmouth. There's going to be a bronze statue of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the common area. And I oh, am proud of that. And, and That's wonderful. Yeah, it is. Uh, and uh, yeah, she was always an inspiration for my daughter, who's in law school right now, I, who, who I think would be rather terrific on the Supreme Court, not that I'm biased <laughs> or anything. <laughs> what, what can modern women learn from these shortlisted sisters? How can female lawyers and jurists sidestep the marginalization of being shortlisted in the future. Is that even possible? That's ah, a heavy well, lift. It's a heavy lift. <laughs> that is, in fact, a heavy lift. And I don't think that there is a way um, to for, you know, for, for women to avoid, avoid necessarily being stuck on the shortlist. But there are no. things that we can, that we can do, um, <clears throat> you know, from a, a, a more structural perspective. Um, to make some change. I think, you know, a lot of us are tired of being told things like, well, you just need to get a mentor, right? You just yeah. need to put yourself out there and you just need to, you know, do this, this, and this. And you know what? It's exhausting. And it's not to say that that's not good advice. Um, I give my law students that advice all the time. You know, having mentors um, in their professional and personal lives is is really essential, um, but that's not enough. And so, you know, we um, we make a number of recommendations in the book, um, I think the most important ones center around structural changes. 
So things that we can do as a society to, you know, make the path a bit easier for women to navigate. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Please. Um, one of the women in our study, um, Soya Menshikov, um, was, you know, the first female um, law professor um, at Harvard and Chicago and the first female dean, permanent dean at the University of Miami Law School. She was the first woman to be president of the American Association of Law Schools, which is a national affinity organization um, that law professors belong to. Mm-hmm. And it's really um, an organization that um, does a lot of really good good work. But one of the things they do every um, winter is they bring together law professors to talk about their research and to connect and to to network and to build relationships and to, you know, to, to get other, um, you know, faculty and professors and researchers to comment on their research. Well, this meeting, when President Menchikov was the president of the AALS, this meeting would take place between Christmas and New Year's. And she, this was, you know, back a number of decades ago, there were women in the legal academy, not that many, but she noticed that women law professors were not coming to this meeting. Um, and that was in large part, you know, she discovered because that time period between Christmas and New Year's was one where, you know, the women law professors were, uh, you know, of course professors, but they also were mothers, many of them. And it was very difficult for them to leave home in the middle of that holiday season. Of course, you know, the men were happy to, to leave the house and, um, you know, go to wherever the conference was. Um, but it was an impediment for many of the female professors. And so, um, so Menshikov simply changed the meeting date. Um, it now today is held in early January, um, you know, after the, the chaos of the holidays. Um, you know, Renee and I benefited uh, from the having that meeting date be when it was. We probably wouldn't have been able to attend it as or as young law professors um, because we were raising, you know, our own children at that time. Um, and it allowed us, in fact, to submit um, you know, an article that we wrote about this media study, and we won um, a pretty um, significant award at that conference. Um, simply, you know, we benefited simply by a change in the date of a meeting. It doesn't seem significant, but it's a small structural change um, that helped women increase their participation in this organization. And then I'll also mention um, President Carter, because we haven't talked about him. Right. Um, and he, in fact, did not have the opportunity to he didn't have, he wasn't faced with the Supreme Court vacancy. Now, had that happened during mm-hmm. his presidency, we have no doubt that he would have put um, he would have diversified the courts because his record of diversifying the federal bench generally um, at the lower levels was was you know he he really gets um, recognition and deserves recognition for um, for for making those. <clears throat> making those appointments. Um, and he used a mechanism, again, I'm talking about structural changes. He mm-hmm. used a mechanism to diversify the bench um, that I think is worth um, you know, noting. He created judicial nominating commissions by executive order um, to basically make sure that, it, and he made sure that these commissions were represented, um, you know, had representatives of, of gender and racial um, and ethnic diversity on them. And so the bodies that were, charged with, you know, identifying potential nominees were diverse themselves. Um, they vetted potential appointees for the courts. Um, and they also required, they were required um, to ask candidates about their commitment to diversity. And in fact, one of the women on uh, in our study, Amalia Kears, who I've, I've talked quite a bit about, she was not only 
on one of those commissions charged with, you know, helping Carter identify possible nominees, but ultimately then benefited um, from one of those commissions, um, you know, identifying her as a potential nominee herself. And so, you know, there are, of course, no shortage of things that any of us can do um, in our individual personal lives to try to move these issues forward. But the structural changes, um, you know, things like making childcare, for example, a public good, um, uh, and making it accessible and affordable um, would go far to address some of the challenges that we continue to face. Yeah, I was so naive back in the late 60s. I thought by now there'd be uh, child care for everybody. That will be considered the public good. Whoa, I was so naive. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a very important part of democracy, the Supreme Court. Our guest is uh, Hannah Brenner Johnson, talking about the book she co-authored, Shortlisted Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court. Who? Well, there is a shortlist now. There's a... Uh, uh, we don't have a lot of time to talk about it, but there's uh, D.C. Circuit Judge Kenja Brown-Jackson, California Supreme Court Justice Leondra Kruger, South Carolina U.S. District Court Judge Michelle Childs, who is favored by Jim Clyburn, who was a big uh, plus in, uh, in uh, 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 Biden's campaign. Uh, I don't know if, if there's time to talk about some of them and, and what you think about uh, the shortlist that there is. So... You know, there are a, a lot. The, the list, I think, continues to grow. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. you know, these women are extraordinarily qualified. They, you know, have excellent, you know, law degrees from, from reputable law schools. They've cultivated very impressive professional careers. Um, you know, the three that you mentioned, of course, are all judges. There are plenty of women on the shortlist um, who are being considered um, w- without judicial experience, but who are you know, equally qualified. It certainly is not a prerequisite that one be a judge um, to be appointed to the Supreme Court. Right. Although in recent years that has that has been a been a trend. Um, I guess save for um, Elena Kagan, who um, was the dean of, of Harvard Law School and um, uh, solicitor general. Um, I, I, I would be remiss though if I didn't um, mention a name that um, that you didn't mention. Please, um, Melissa Melissa Murray. Melissa Murray is a law professor at NYU. Um, and she also um, uh, wrote the new forward to our paperback um, uh, version uh, of the book. And so um, we are incredibly um, just, uh, you know, filled with um, gratitude and pride um, that uh, that she is you know, somebody who's being seriously considered um, by President Biden for a, um, a position on the Supreme Court. And, you know, of course, um, that she um, uh, has, you know, uh, written a, a piece of our of our new book um, is very, very um, exciting to us. But, um, you know, there are there's there's this this incredible list of, of women. Yeah. I don't envy the decision. No. Um, as you mentioned, um, I know Judge Childs uh, with her South Carolina connections um, is probably um, I would imagine um, a political favorite, um, you know, simply because of, of what that will do. Um, uh, and, you know, as we've been talking about all hour, this this process is a political one um, and presidents make very calculated decisions. Yes. Um, it goes well beyond the qualifications. But, um, you know, one can't look at the list of, of names that have been floated thus far. And um, I, I think it would be almost impossible to poke holes in the records and the qualifications of these women. It's just a question of, you know, who Biden uh, decides uh, will perhaps um, serve, uh, hopefully serve uh, the court um, the best and our country best, but also 
um, I know that politics are are going to be an important consideration. Yeah, imagine that. And you know, I don't know if it makes sense for people. You know, once the name is out there, for people to contact their senators, they I I, I do think elected officials they care about well two things: money and getting reelected. <laughs> 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 and if they hear from people. Maybe it'll make a difference. I don't know. Is there anything? I mean, I always like to, you know, I believe in democracy. More democracy, the better. Uh, is there anything regular people can do aside, in addition to buying your book, Shortlisted Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court? Well, I mean, I think being, you know, being engaged and being informed, you know, again, I think the the judicial process is, is a bit of a mystery to many people. And so True. paying attention, you know, reading about the the potential nominees, as you mentioned, you know, making calls to their elected officials um, is always um, a good thing. And political engagement, you know, can come in lots of forms. It can be sending a postcard, um, as my mother does um, on almost a daily basis. Um, you know, it can be reading the news. It can be talking to your kids. Uh-huh. Um, you mentioned you mentioned your daughter, and um, I have a, a 15-year-old daughter who, um, you know, can't help but be involved um, and informed of these issues because yeah. of who her mother is. Right. Um, but I do think that talking to young people about the importance um, of these appointments uh, is is a really important thing and, and doesn't take a lot of time, energy, or money to do. We can shape the future that way. We really can. We are not powerless. You know, the uh, there are certain powers uh, and interests that want us to believe we are powerless. They've succeeded a lot, but we are not powerless. Very interesting discussion and uh, some hope for a better Supreme Court. Now, it's not going to change anything, really, because uh, uh, Breyer is relatively liberal, and presumably this next appointee will be relatively liberal, but maybe she can shape the discussion toward uh, sanity and the Constitution, stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Hannah Brenner Johnson. The book is called Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful discussion. And this is from a long time ago, but you know what? History moves more slowly than we'd like. I am woman, hear me roar, in numbers too big to ignore. And I know too much to go back and pretend. Cause I've heard it all before, and I've been down there on the floor. No one's ever gonna keep me down again. Well, yes, I'm wise, but it's wisdom for the pain. Yes, I paid the price, but look how much I gained if I have to. I can do anything. I am strong. It only serves to make me more determined to achieve my final goal. And I come back even stronger, not a novice any longer, cause you deepen the conviction in my soul.
I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Twice a week, every week, subscribe. Don't miss a single one on the website, Apple Podcast, or Stitcher.